Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2017 AWP conference in Washington, D.C. The recording features Sarah Schneider, Richard Russo, Lewis Robinson, Molly McGrath, and Sonia Tomlinson. You will now hear Sarah Schneider provide introductions. My grandmother still lives in Somalia. Sometimes I call her. I love my grandmother. I was closest person to her. She used to take care of me. On our way to Kenya, we were at the border, and my mother wanted to labor with me. But when we came to America, there was no place for my grandmother. I wanted to stay with her, but she said I had to go with my mother, that she was too old to take care of me. She went back to Somalia. She lives in Kismaya now, where her other daughters take care of her. You always believed in me. You always tell me, don't let yourself down, no matter what. You ask me how things were going. I always say things were fine and going well, but I never told you the truth of how things were really going with me. I didn't want to break your heart, but you knew something was wrong. The life I was living was a life I was not comfortable with without you. I knew you were far away, but your love keeps me safe and gives me peace. And I wish you were here with me. You say if school's going well, keep focus on your education. Don't mess up your life. You say I'm waiting for you. My dream is to build a mosque for you in Kismayo. But I have to finish my education and a good, a good job. I have to have a plan. I have to work hard to achieve my goals. We came to America for the opportunity for free education. It will be our dress. I am an immigrant. I am a Muslim. I am a woman, and I have a dark skin, but I'm not full. I know it will be hard, but I will make my dream come true. I will make your dream come true, grandmother. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome, and thank you for being here. My name is Sarah Schneider, and I'm the moderator for our panel today. I told the paper with a pencil how refugee and immigrant teens find and share their voices through writing. We're here together representing The Telling Room, a nonprofit creative writing center in Portland, Maine. Founded in 2004 by three nationally acclaimed writers, Susan Conley, Sarah Corbett, and Mike Paterniti, the Telling Room works with young writers aged 6 to 18. We seek to build confidence, strengthen literacy skills, and provide real audiences for our students. As a Telling Room's development manager, a big part of my job is to help shine a light on our students. So if you'll permit me just a moment to give a snapshot. We offer a safe space where all students, regardless of where they're from, or their family's economic status, can encounter and practice creative writing in a supportive, structured environment. We work with students who may be reluctant to write, as well as those who are already identify themselves as writers, including children and young adults who are part of Maine's growing community of immigrants and refugees. 
students with emotional behavioral challenges, students struggling in mainstream classrooms, homeschoolers, incarcerated and other at-risk youth, and passionate young writers who benefit from support beyond what their schools are able to provide. As Maine's only youth-focused literary arts organization, we provide creative writing programs for more than 3,000 Maine youth each year. We reach students from 100 schools in more than 75 towns statewide, and all of our core programs are 100% free, so the students and their family ensuring that young people who are least likely to have a voice in the community can participate. We believe stories matter, writing matters, listening is paramount. Today, we're going to highlight one of our nine programs called Young Writers and Leaders. This is our after-school program for immigrant and refugee teens. We often say international students, as that is often their preference. This program serves 60 students each year. We'll, fo we'll focus our time around exploring the enormous potential that youth storytelling and youth-generated literature have to shape community conversations. We'll discuss and demonstrate the power of connecting teens to their community through writing. And we'll share some nuts and bolts about how you can start or grow your own youth writing endeavor in your own community. A few items to note just about the structure of our talk today. You may have already noticed that the representatives on this panel are not representative of the diverse students we work with. We're not just white up here. We are Maine winter white. <laughs> so we would love to have our students here with us this week. But because of school schedules and budget realities, they're just not able to join us in person. So to ensure that their voices are heard here today, we've included multimedia so that they can chime in throughout the presentation. I also wanted to note that AWP is recording today's panel for their podcast series, and you can share it when it's um, available later this spring. That'd be great. We'll also save time for a 15-minute Q&A uh, at the end of our talk. And now I'd like to introduce our panel. Down at the end, we have Lewis Robinson. The author of the novel Water Dogs and the story collection Officer Friendly and other stories. Yes, please. <laughs> A hearty welcome for Lewis. <laughs> A winner of the Whiting Award, his short fiction and essays have appeared in Tin House, the Missouri Review, the New York Times Book Review, and on NPR's Selected Shorts. He has taught fiction writing at the University of Iowa, Colby College, the University of Southern Maine's Stone Coast MFA program, and Stanford University's Continuing Studies program. He hosts the podcast Talk Shop. It's great. You check it out. He's a telling room author and has served as a mentor in our Young Writers and Leaders program. Next, we have Molly Haley. She's the telling room's director of multimedia, as well as a young... Oh, fans. Yay! As well as a photographer and documentary storyteller. She's developed curriculum and delivered programming on radio, journalism, and multimedia. Molly holds a BA in Spanish from the University of Maine and is a graduate of the Salt Institute for Documentary Studies. Her work has been published in The Atlantic, Poets and Writers, Down East Magazine, and elsewhere. Molly McGrath was part of the original staff that ran the Young Writers and Leaders program for its first few years. <laughs> Molly is also a book editor and has an MFA in creative nonfiction. She is the Telling Room's Director of Publications, and she's especially proud of our role at the forefront of youth publishing. Since the printing of our first book in 2007, we've published more than 2,500 young authors and over 100 books to help students share their stories. And finally, we have Richard Russo, novelist and screenwriter. He's the Vice President of the Authors Guild. <laughs> 
for which he helped showcase emerging writers. He received the 2002 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction for Empire Falls. His most recent book is Everybody's Fool. Rick, will you start us off today with your story of how you came to learn about The Telling Room and what that experience was like for you? Thank you. Um, thank you, Sarah. Can you all hear? Okay, good. Back when I was in graduate school, I had a grumpy writing teacher who, when someone told them that they wanted to be a writer, would invariably ask, have you done a stint in the Army yet? When they said no, he'd ask, have you had at least one divorce? If they replied no again, he would say, well, come back when you've lived. This was the late 70s, and creative writing programs were just then beginning to proliferate. It would be decades before every English department at every university in the country would boast both an undergraduate and, and graduate creative writing program, before creative writing began to be taught in junior and community colleges. Eventually, and perhaps inevitably, creative writing would find its way even into high school curricula. By the time that happened, I had become grumpy myself and took a dim view of encouraging students to write at a time when they should be reading and living. Sure, where there were other defining life experiences beyond combat and divorce, but in general, I thought it best to have a little life under your belt before you started telling people what you make of it. I would probably still believe that if I hadn't got involved with the telling room when I moved to Portland, Maine. They had just started a book project called The Story I Want to Tell, which paired student writers, most of them high school students, and many recent immigrants, with professional writers who would then respond in some way to their work. I was given a bunch of writing samples to choose from. There were many strong, moving narratives, but one written by a young man named Richard Akira, AK to his friends, knocked me sideways. It took place in a refugee camp in Uganda, where AK's family was living after they'd fled Sudan. One day, when his mother was off at the church tent, AK and his brother were left in charge of their youngest brother, then a toddler. When they ran out of water, the two older boys grabbed the bucket and went to the well at the center of the camp. They had just managed to raise the bucket full from the well when they heard their little brother's screams. Running back, they found the child in the dirt, his jaw half chewed off by a starving, gray-muzzled dog. In the second half of AK's story, but never mind that for now, let's instead go back to my grumpy professor's questions. Have you done a stint in the army? Have you had your first divorce? AK, at 18, would have had to answer no to those questions, but who in his right mind would want to say to this particular young man, come back when you've lived? That was the thing about all these telling room kids. They had lived. Here on the other side of the world, they were still trying to make sense of their experiences a past that they couldn't forget, and a present that was as strange to them as it was wonderful. How could they move on with their lives without at least beginning to understand their new lives, without beginning to understand their old ones? 
What we who worked with these student writers quickly learned was that their stories weren't just important to them. They were also important to us. They expanded our understanding, not just of the world, but of our privileged place in it. We began to feel viscerally what we already knew intellectually. These young people were not like us. They were us, just with a different set of experiences. They needed us to see them, to bear witness, to help make their experiences live in words on a page. What they offered to us in return was the gift of themselves. What kind of person says no thanks? So I'm lucky, and can you hear me okay? I get a little closer to the mic. All right, thanks. Um, so I'm lucky that I get to got to work with Rick and also with AK on their stories in the uh, story I want to tell, which is a, a fantastic book. And I just want to say there is a book signing at the end of this um, back at our table in the book expo. Um, and there you can you can read those stories too. You can read AK's whole story and also what Rick ended up doing with it um, in his own way to honor it after in the collection. So, um, so the a question is... Um, where do stories like AKs come from, and how do we at the Telling Room help foster them and bring them out um, into the world? Uh, one of the things that, one of the programs that we do have at the Telling Room is the one that AK himself was a part of, which was called the Young Writers and Leaders Program. Um, so that program is specifically for international high school students. Um, it exemplifies our basic belief that everybody has a story to tell. That's really important. And also that these kids' stories have the power to transform themselves, but also all of, all of us out here. So, um, And speaking of us, I want to know a little bit about you. So I have a few questions, and if you could raise your hand, that would be helpful. So um, first of all, how many of you currently have a writing center in your town or uh, city? Just put your hands up if you have one. For, That's great. Yeah. And yes, yeah, state is great. Sure. Yeah, state too. And how many of you have a writing a writing center specifically for youth in your towns and communities? Well, a bunch of you. That's great. Um, how many of you live in places where immigrant and refugee students are? Glad to see everybody's hands are up. <laughs> uh, how many of you have ever worked one on one with a writing student, young or old? Great. Um, Another question, how many of you um, have a population of artists and writers right there in your own community who might have a little spare time to do this kind of work, to work one-on-one -on -one with a writer? <laughs> right, okay. And uh, most of you. So um, this one might stump you. How many of you <laughs> have shared a book of stories by kids with kids? A few less. Okay. Good job, guys. More of you should share writing by students with students. I'm going to just put that in there right now. Okay, and then how many of you have been involved with a community audience where stories and poems can be read and heard? All hands should be up. Because <laughs> you're all in that right now, so that, that works. Um, so that's great. And I, I want to find that out in part because I wanted to point out that if you raise your hand for any of those things, then you can do a lot of this work that we're doing at the Telling Room. It's not really unique to us. 
It is not unique to us. People are doing it all over our country, all over the world. And so you can too. So today we're really hoping to allow you to, allow you to find ways that you can bring some of the things that we do into your own communities. Um, but I should talk a little bit about Maine because as Sarah pointed out, you know, we're mostly white in Maine. And, um, but, but that's mostly. And, and so since the mid-1990s, uh, the immigrant population has, has definitely been growing in Portland and greater Portland. Um, today, Portland schools look so different than they did 20 years ago. Uh, 83 different countries are represented. 33% of the student population uh, are from other countries. So um, that's a big change. But since uh, the Telling Room began, we have always been working with this population. And um, we're pretty committed to it, in part because we learned early on, we read some of their stories, and we heard some of their stories early on. Um, this book right here, it's a book called I Remember Warm Rain. It is 15 stories by immigrant and refugee youth. Um, and in it, they all tell their coming to America stories. So we started with that book, and actually, this little tiny square book outsold Harry Potter in our local bookstore, Longfellow Books. So yeah, so yeah, Harry Potter, yeah. Um, and uh, but so what's important about that is right away we knew that we had an authentic audience for these stories. People wanted to to hear them, and wanted to share them. So um, so we kept going, and uh, we are inspired by the students themselves who wanted to keep coming and telling their stories, and we are inspired by the teachers who kept telling us that they needed more support for their students in school. And because of that, we launched the Young Writers and Leaders Program in 2010. So um, today there's more demand for the, pro for the program from the community than ever before, and more demand from the students themselves, and there are more students to serve. So we we're, keep we're growing this program. It's... it's um, it's, it's really important work that's happening, that, and, and we're just so proud of it. So um, I'm not going to say any more. I'm going to let this lovely video tell you a little bit more about the Young Writers and Leaders Program. Thank you. Back in Congo, we heard rumors that the United States is a paradise. I anticipated this beautiful country where there were no challenges, no war, no conflict. I was ready to take it to the next step, but things didn't go as I expected. Young Writers and Leaders is a free after-school literary arts program for international multilingual high school students. We select 30 students a year through a competitive application and interview process. improve students' writing skills, academic performance, social and emotional well-being, and increases their chances for future success. YWL has served teens recently arrived from countries all around the world. Students receive creative writing guidance and one-on-one -on -one mentoring in all genres, including poetry, personal narrative, fiction, journalism, and documentary. Students also receive leadership experiences, including college preparation assistance, financial literacy training, and public speaking coaching. Help bring this program to over 100 new students by 2020 by visiting tellingroom.org slash give. I know that my life, our life, is a story, and it just begun.
So this short film was tailored to support our YWL expansion project. We doubled the program this year in response to growing demand. It gives you all a glimpse of the amazing kids that we get to work with, and it also highlights how powerful creative youth development programs can be for individuals and for communities. If you haven't heard of creative youth development, uh, these are programs that integrate the arts, the sciences, and humanities with uh, positive youth development principles, and they position young people as active agents of their own change. A recent article in Arts Education Policy Review noted that these programs are assets-based, uh, viewing youth as resources in the community and partners in learning rather than vessels to be filled or problems to be solved. Uh, this work is youth-driven, and key to our talk today, it develops to serve local needs, and, as Molly was saying, and work with local talent, which is where you come in. Uh, we're just one of many organizations that provide creative youth development programming, and our student, Farhio Hassan, talked about one of the key elements of YWL this way. Many programs want us, as immigrant youth, to translate our experiences and culture for them. But the telling room honors our individual stories and connects us so we can learn from each other. We uncover our identities and become grounded in who we are. So with these ideas in mind, uh, Molly Haley, will you take us through what a year in YWL looks like? Yes, I will. <laughs> Hi, everybody. So we're both named Molly. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we've been running this program for the past seven years, and I'm here today as one of the teachers of the program to talk about how we go about implementing it, um, to maybe give you some ideas for if you go back to your own community and want to start something like this to adapt it to what uh, your students might be interested in. So we meet with our students at our writing center for nine months from October until June after school, uh, once a week. And it's about two and a half hours each week 34 total sessions across the whole school year. And it's a project-based learning program, like Sarah was saying, that we focus on poetry, personal narrative, and documentary studies over the course of the year. Um, the program includes a stipend for the students. Each month, each month they get a stipend um, because they're committing to a full year with us, and that's oftentimes a bigger commitment than a sport um, or most other extracurriculars. Um, and that when they're with us, they're real working writers. Um, they'll be creating new pieces of writing all throughout the year, standing up in front of audiences all throughout the year and sharing their work. Um, and we really want to reward them for that, that writers get paid. Writers are working hard. Um, and it's a really competitive program for them to get into. Um, so they're very eager for this opportunity to do this creative work and be a part of an international cohort. Um, so how do you find these students that are really interested in being in this program back in your city? For us in Portland, it's been really important to develop strong relationships with the ELL, English language learning, teachers at the schools. Um, and we go to them at school to do an info session, an interview session. Um, the, the teachers will identify students and encourage them to come to this interview that they think would be a great fit for the program or might have something they want to share with the community. Um, and they know the students best at that point. So we go into their schools to meet them where they are there, and we always come into that room and, as a staff and start that session off with a question to all the students, what is your relationship to writing right now? And usually they go around the room and say, like, oh, I write essays for school, 
you know, I text my friends. I, <laughs> um, I just do, you know, as I do assignments. That's what I do. That's the kind of writing I do. Once in a while, there'll be a student who says, like, well, I have a journal. Like, I write in a journal. I, I, I write a poem sometimes. Um, but it's definitely a new experience for them to talk about being a part of a, of a creative writing program outside of school to share something personal from their own life and create something new. Um, in Portland, the students that will show up for the interview are all multilingual students, but some may be refugees, some might be immigrants, some might be asylum seekers, and some might be first-generation students. Um, for an asylum seeker, they may have only been in the U.S. for a couple of months, um, and they may have received um, private education, um, education at a private school for years. There might also be a student in the room who was born in a refugee camp and never received formal schooling in that camp until they came to the United States. Um, also, students who are first generation born here in the U.S. Um, and go and are fluent in English and go to school here, but when they go home, they speak another language at home. Um, those are the students we see in Portland. But for all of them, they're very excited at this opportunity to learn more about writing, especially creative writing, connect with their community, and tell their story. And it's a pretty new thing for them. And um, one student came to this interview a few years ago named Omar Rauf, and he was so excited and he wanted to get in so much that he told us in his interview that he almost pulled the fire alarm so that no one else would come um, and that he would definitely get a spot in the program. <laughs> um, he didn't pull the fire alarm, but he did get a spot in the program. Um, so we set up a group interview um, with small groups, and we asked them questions like, what, do you, what kind of writing do you do now? What kind of writing help do you need? Um, have you ever felt like a leader before in your life? Um, how do you feel about the idea of getting up on stage in front of an audience that you don't know and sharing something true from your own life? And a really important question, what's powerful about bringing multilingual students together from all over the world into one room to work on the creative project together? What's powerful and important about that? We asked those questions in the interview. Um, and we want to ask them these questions as a small group because they're going to be a cohort throughout the year speaking in front of each other and sharing with each other a lot. And we want to see how they, they are in a small group setting like that. Um, we also do a written application with a writing sample, which is really important to see what kind of writing style they have, um, what sorts of things they notice as writers and, and write down on the page. Um, but then we leave the school and we have the really exciting and hard job of choosing the students that get in for the year because it is competitive and we can't um, serve every student that applies each year, um, which is why we're trying to grow it right now. Um, but um, we decide we want the cohort of 15 students for each group to be a really interesting mix of students that have different personalities, different writing abilities, styles, and interests, um, who are from varying home countries. Um, we want it to be an interesting mix. And we make personalized phone calls to each of the students to tell them that they got in. And those are some amazing calls to make. Um, so the year, when they come to the telling room, when they show up at the telling room and they've gotten into the program and they've signed up for it, we break up the year into three distinct units. We have the poetry, which I'll talk a little bit about, personal narrative and mentorship in the winter, which Lewis will talk about. And then uh, we move to documentary studies in the spring, um, and Molly's going to tell you more about that. So we shift focus throughout the year, but every single session begins with a really important ritual, which is free write. Um, 
and the telling room space is not like school. It's a studio, um, and there are couches, beanbags, really colorful rugs on the floor, lanterns hanging from the ceiling, and the first day that they show up, we give them a journal. That's Rode over there, Rode Pambu. She's from the Democratic Republic of Congo. She's one of our students right now. And she got her journal on the first day, and it's an old National Geographic map with uh, Congo represented right on the front. Um, and her name is embossed on the top, too. So each student gets a journal that they get to keep for the whole year. And we give them this journal, and we say, okay, find a spot in the room wherever you want to sit and write about whatever is on your mind right now. Free write. And they're like, what? <laughs> um, and, you know, they'll write about anything. They can just catch up with themselves. Um, they can write about their day, their families, maybe the political climate. Um, they could make up a totally fictional story or try their hand at a poem. But it's totally up to them what they write every time. And then it's totally up to them what they share. So we'll circle up and students will decide. It's very student-led um, what they want to share with the group and when and how much. And this exchange between the students forges their bond as a cohort pretty quickly. Um, and uh, they really sense that their peers... Um, have some shared experiences that they might not have known about if it hadn't come out through the story. Um, so it can really uh, have pretty transformative results when they reveal their inner worlds to each other. Um, when we begin poetry, um, we have an eye towards their cultural identity, these students, that they're the historians of their own firsthand experiences, and poetry could offer them a platform to interact with each other and learn that. Um, they have some things in common. Um, so this is an exposure to a new set of tools for self-expression and also to the constructs of writing as an art. And for a lot of them, this is the first time they've been asked to write creatively about topics from their own life. Um, and uh, we introduced them to famous poets like Maya Angelou, Rumi, Khalil Gibran, Richard Blanco, Mary Oliver, um, they each write their own individual poem, but they work in small groups um, on a group piece as well, and those are memorized. And um, this poetry unit lasts for eight weeks, and it has a performance as the end goal where they're going to get up on stage and read these poems in front of an audience of strangers, friends, teachers. Um, and for many of them, this is the first time they've been on stage or at a mic, uh, especially sharing something important from their own life. And one such student is Rocio Perez, who we're going to watch a little video of her reading at um, our poetry reading this past December. She's a first-generation Salvadoran-American, and she's reading an ode about the women in her family. Um, this is an ode to the women in my family. To the women in my family, you are living forms of epic poems, you are run-on sentences with only commas and semicolons, and no periods because you are not done talking and you will make sure they hear you. To the women in my family who take no bullshit and will not be confined to the ideology that they need to be docile and fragile, but see that there is power in being soft. To the women in my family who make time work for them, who stretch the 24 hours of the day to make sure they see their child's chorus recital despite not knowing one word they are singing in English. To the women in my family whose tongues refuse to assimilate to a language too dull for their colorful, whose language always guides them towards home. 
whose language reminds them of what they've lost. Hundreds of years ago, when colonizers stepped on our sacred lands and claimed it as theirs. To the women in my family who are a two-for-one parent, who protect valiantly and love fiercely, the love for the hearts of 20 in the absence of one. To the women in my family, to my ancestors, who were princesses and queens, teachers and doctors and brilliant women, who stood tall, chins up, shoulders back in the face of adversity. To the women in my family, to the threads that connect us in resilience and solidarity, in solidarity and love. To the women in my family who taught me well and who will always guide me, here's to you. So following our performances, we always have a Q&A with the audience because these are people that might be new to the telling room, that might be new to meeting our students. And um, our students have just shared a lot about who they are and what's important to them and their, their past experiences. And we really want um, the opportunity for that conversation to happen between the audience and the students about the writing process, but just as people, too. Um, and we let the students ask the audience questions as well, if they want to. Um, so following the poetry unit, we move into our personal narrative and mentorship in the winter. And it's another time that we invite the community in to work with these students and know them and to have our students meet people from Portland as well. And um, each student is paired with their own writing mentor, writing coach. And these are volunteers from a wide uh, array of backgrounds. We have writers, teachers, photographers, journalists, architects, actors coming in to work with our students one-on-one. -on -one. Um, and the main goal of this unit, personal narrative, is for the story or poem to be true and about the student and their experience. And they work for two months one-on-one -on -one with this mentor to generate, revise, and prepare their story for publication in a book. And Lewis Robinson was one of our mentors last year, and he's going to tell you about the process that he and his mentee, Hamza Diwale, had together. Great. Thanks. Thanks, Molly. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so Hamza was part of a, of a cohort of 15 students, as Molly said. Um, and uh, those 15 uh, were from eight different countries, um, Kenya, Somalia, Iraq, Democratic Republic of Congo, Jordan, Afghanistan, Burundi, and Rwanda. And, and like Molly said, when I, when I met them, um, they'd already uh, gotten comfortable with, with, the, with being in the telling room and um, gotten to know each other, because <clears throat> they'd all spent the fall, as Molly said, writing poetry together and with Molly. Um, so when we, we mentors, we 15 mentors to match up with the 15 kids, when we arrived on the scene, the kids were, um, were already established ambassadors of the program. So they were the ones who were really welcoming us into the fold. Um, they'd already spent a good chunk of time finding their footing as writers. Uh, they, they'd started to experiment, uh, and they'd They'd even gotten a taste of what it feels like to speak to an authentic audience. Uh, that first that first meeting of the 15 adults and the 15 uh, teenagers had this uh, great celebratory feeling. We all, I think we all, all 30 of us recognized uh, what a great opportunity we had. Um, the kids were eager to hone their writing skills and to tell their stories, and and we adults were were excited to listen. 
Um, so that before that first meeting, we, the 15 adults, were kind of waiting out in the hall and waiting for our cue from Molly to come into the room. And then when we did come into the room, it was just everyone, all 30 of us were just beaming. And then people started hugging and shaking hands. And it was, it was a great moment. Um, and the, the, the program builds in a lot of getting to know you time. Uh, I started by asking Hamza um, just, you know, about the rhythm of his daily life. Um, you know, his family, uh, what his school here was like, what kind of music he listened to, what he did with his free time. And, and I also shared details about my own life with him. Um, it, was, it was important uh, to me that these early conversations were, um, were unstructured and, and unrecorded. So um, I wasn't jotting down any notes, um, you know, for those first uh, several conversations. Um, my at that point, my only goal was was to listen and to try to be real and um, and to share. But once you know, once we established um, this the, this basic kind of trust and respect, then we took out our notebooks uh, and one of the first exercises we did was to each uh, spend about twenty minutes uh, writing describing a mentor or a teacher from our past. So we each did that, and then we read them aloud to each other. Um, through, through these conversations for those, um, you know, those first three or four weeks, uh, I learned more about Hamza's family from Somalia, his parents, his three brothers and four sisters, um, how he and his siblings had spent most of uh, their early childhood in Saudi Arabia, and, and then when, he, when, when Hamza was in fourth grade, they moved to Syria uh, in the hope of, um, of finding better schools. And, um, and then it was when he was in ninth grade uh, that the Civil War um, began and, uh, and his school, the school that he was attending, was shut down. And he was in Syria for the next two years um, without any school. They lived in Damascus. And... Um, and he described this time as, as very frustrating. You know, he, it was difficult, really difficult for him to have all of that idle time. Um, he, uh, you know, he, he also described how, how close he was with his friends and how they would spend a lot of hours playing this card game called Tarnib and, uh, and they would play pick up soccer some, but, it was, it was frustrating to him ultimately because he had, since he was a little boy, dreamed of becoming a pilot, and he knew that these idle years were not going to help him achieve that goal. One thing that he felt very strongly uh, about expressing to me during this time was that he was not exactly excited to come to the United States, um, that he was primarily nervous, um, and he really didn't want to leave the people um, you know that he that he was bonded to in, in Syria, and this was a moment that he knew. Uh, you know, all of his friends were soon to be scattered throughout the world to Germany, to Canada, to other parts of the United States, um, and there was so much that was unknown. He and his family didn't know that they were going to be um, you know moved to the United States until about two two weeks uh, before it happened. So, um, so many of our early conversations circled around that feeling of being suspended um, between the two worlds, uh, you know, dangling there between the past and the future. 
And he described the way that he would look longingly up at the sky, at planes overhead, and um, and you know, and wish that he was he was the pilot of one of those planes. Uh, he he described then the feeling of getting onto a plane for the first time, which was that flight out of Syria to um, to New York, and. Um, how on that plane his mind was flitting back and forth between what he was leaving behind and what he was heading towards. So I asked him to try to describe the physical sensation of being on that plane, um, and to try to remember what it had felt like to just look out the window um, while he was enduring this emotional turmoil. And that's when he came up with that, with the refrain that begins his poem, and, and you all have a, uh, or you all should have a copy of, of his poem. He came up with the refrain that begins and ends the poem, I see the world very small, I hear the winds like a beautiful song, I touch the soft clouds, I taste the stars, I smell the breath of space. We went through many drafts of, of his poem, and often the movement from draft to draft followed a similar pattern, uh, I would print out what we had so far and ask him to circle his favorite parts and also circle the parts that he felt weren't quite right. And then I would separately highlight um, those places that I felt could be opened up um, with more illustration. So the direction I was pushing him in often was just to specify um, and to illustrate. He would say, he would talk about how much he loved his friends. And so then I would ask, what do you remember about them exactly? Um, he, he had images in his head of, of the United States. And, and so I asked him, what are those exactly and where, where do those come from? And he initially would say, they, they come from the Vampire Diaries or 90210. And then, and then he would say he also had this image of like an endless green soccer field um, that he imagined uh, when, he, when he thought of the United States. If, if Hamza asked for uh, the correct way to say something, I did my best to offer him um, conventional syntax and diction. Um, for example, when he described the moment of getting onto the plane with his siblings and his mother handing out pieces of gum to them, he wrote, she gave us gums. He was eager, though, to know the appropriate way to, um, to phrase his memories. And on the other side, I was, I was eager to not change the way he wanted to express something. So I think, in the end, we, we achieved the right balance, um, each of us helping the, hel well, yeah, each of us helping each other out until uh, the final product felt really fully his. Before, before I met Hamza uh, and became his writing mentor, there's, there were some um, pictures of that, that fall reading um, where they read the poems that they'd written with Molly. And I attended his cohort's um, first public reading. And what I remember that, about that, you know, before I, I got to know Hamza and, and um, his, his peers, um, is just being a member of the Portland community in the audience and feeling very proud of the young people of our city as they told their stories publicly. Uh, and I also re remember feeling that um, if those calling for an immigrant ban had been in the audience, uh, they would have been able to see that policy differently. 
while working with Hamza and getting to know the others in his cohort, um, that feeling just grew and grew. Um, the, the process of all of us seeing each other's lives from the inside out um, is really what the Young Writers and Leaders program is all about. Uh, and it's community work like, like this that I, I think could really change the national conversation. having a handout either in your hand or have some easy access to one if you don't yet. We're going to hear Hamza read his poem from our book once. And this is the final version of the poem that he worked on with Lewis. Um, this is also available on our SoundCloud page. Here's then and Now by Hamza Duhal. I see the world very small. I hear the winds like a beautiful song. I touch the soft clouds. I taste the stars. I smell the breath of space. To me then, it was a wonderland I always wanted to live in. I loved the old beautiful buildings, their shiny windows like stars in a dark night. The sounds of the Adan from the mosques and the sounds of the bells from the church were the most beautiful things I ever heard. The kids playing in the streets were like Beautiful birds sit free. That is what I remember. When I walk into the airplane, I have an argument with my younger brother about who's going to sit in the window seat. The aisle is small. He walks in front of me. He takes the seat. I tell him to get up. My mom tells him to get up. And then I sit down. My mother passes strawberry gums to us to help with the pressure in our ears. While I'm chewing, I'm thinking back and forth between the past and the future. What would happen to the coffee shop in Damascus where my friend and I used to play cards? What would happen to the owner and his son? What would happen to Hassan and Hussein? Will their family be able to go to Turkey? What would happen to the school where we played soccer? Would it open again? But now the buildings have collapsed and the streets are damaged. Children want to eat and mothers are crying hard for their children who didn't come back home. They had no choice except to leave everything behind. Many people died in the ocean trying to survive. All that happened and is still happening. And all I can do is pray for Syria and Syrian refugees. The plane start moving faster and faster, then it flies like swan. My legs are weightless, like the first time I stood on the top of a mountain. My heartbeats are going so fast, like the first time I talked to the girl I love. I don't know if I'm scared or excited to be going to the United States. How will the language of the people around me sound? Will the fields be green like the ones on the TV? Will I hear the voice of the Adan again? Will I see my old friends who live in the United States now? The whole time, the sun doesn't go down. It is following us. We don't see night. I have a close view of the clouds. I see the Mediterranean Sea 
It looks huge below me. Already I miss my old home, but a new home is waiting for me. I see the world very small. I hear the winds like a beautiful song. I touch the soft clouds. I taste the stars. I smell the breath of space. So can we have a quick round of applause for Hamza? <laughs> so um, yeah, so Hamza's poem is in this book once um, with a lot of other students. And I did, did want to point out that um, the students do work with um, within the program, the Young Writers and Leaders program, and then we publish their work sometimes with with other programs as well. And in fact, Hamza, after he worked with Lewis on the poem, the next step was to meet with our publishing workshop, which is a mix of students and adults who are editors. So the, the students themselves work on the pieces further to bring them to publication, um, which is kind of cool. So, um, but before this happened, um, there's one more part to the YWL year. Um, and there is a real arc to the program. It's very deliberate. The poetry comes first, and during the poetry, the students are discovering themselves. They're doing a little bit more with diction and with, with literacy. Um, and then they move into this wonderful mentorship where they really get to develop their own personal stories and really go along with their own thoughts for a long time. And then it's spring, and in, in Maine, um, spring is huge. It's actually called mud season, um, but it's still really invigorating, and, and, and we let the kids out of, of our little cozy space, and they go out onto the streets, and at that point, they're ready to get outside of themselves, too, I think. And, and so they go out on, on the streets and talk to the people they see there. Uh, so that's documentary studies. That's what happens next. And uh, they'll go out, and they'll take with them a notebook, they'll take a camera, they'll take an audio recorder, and they'll interview the people that they see. Um, they ask them some central questions, some things that matter to them uh, that they want to know. So they're, they're moving away from their selves and getting into their community a little bit through that process. In the end, they make some beautiful multimedia pieces, um, which is pretty exciting. And then the, the program draws to a close with a, a great community celebration called Big Night, um, and they're there. Their book is there. It's been published. Uh, they're on stage in front of 300 people who come out to cheer them on. Uh, and these are people that now they know a little better, or in many cases, a lot better, in a case like Lewis and Hamza. So um, it's really exciting. Uh, it's a wonderful program. It's, it's, it's just, I think that, you know, everybody grows hugely through it. And we get to know each other a lot better. So um, two of them, and just the two books that we're featuring here at the conference today, uh, The Story I Want to Tell and A Season for Building Houses, are both examples of, of this. And um, in, in The Season for Building Houses, these are the stories of, of students who leave the, their home countries and then make their journey and then find these new homes here. So it's always a season for building houses for them. Um, so that's a, a pretty... A, great story. Their, their stories are wonderful. They come out in these books, and then we really make an effort to get the books into the hands of uh, the community, including teachers who are able to give them to their students, and the students read them, and suddenly the, the students want to write. So there's a wonderful circle that happens there, and I think, Rick, you've pointed out before that you can't be, you can't write well unless you're reading first. So um, that's, that's how that works. That's, that's the lovely circle. Um, and I would say that um, the book that illustrates that the best might be the story I want to tell, um, just because it's got this 
this incredible dynamic where we gave um, these wonderful writers, these adult writers that we work with, pieces of writing um, by our students, and the, those stories are some of our, our students' most compelling stories, and we asked them to respond to them in some way creatively and write their own story, and that, so the pairs of stories are in, are in this book. Um, one of them is, is AK's story, which was paired with um, Rick, so... Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit more. Return to AK's story. Rick, could you do that? What struck me immediately was how cinematic AK's story was. How, how so many of the best details would be available to a camera. The dusty, overcrowded refugee camp. The wooden bucket used to draw water up from the communal well how the two skinny, malnourished boys must have struggled to drag that full bucket up from the dark depths, the graying muzzle of the starving dog, the terrified, mutilated child. And later, in the second half of the story, the bloody rock that A.K. used to beat that dog to death, wanting the animal to be, as he put it, not just dead, but dead, dead. So that's how I responded to AK's story, by turning it into a, a scene from a screenplay. The idea being to demonstrate how fully realized it already was, how I had to invent almost nothing, only adjust the details to a different medium. You can read his story and my treatment of it in the story I want to tell. Since the book came out, AK and I have actually taken our, sh our, sh our show on the road a couple of times uh, to an arts venue in Portland where we did a dramatic reading, switching back and forth between our two pieces, and even more importantly to Portland High School from which AK had recently graduated. You should have seen the looks on the faces of those high school kids as AK talked about the process of writing his story. You could tell they had stories, too. Stories that were important to them, to us. As you view the short film about this, uh, this short film about the story I want to tell, see if you can tell whether the words you're listening to were written by the students or by their mentors. See if you can spot some of the more famous folk, writer folk, like Lily King and Bill Rohrbach and Lewis Robinson, but mostly look at the faces of these kids. There are others like them in your own communities, and they're waiting to tell you their stories. I will tell you now about the night everything changed. It was the hour just after dinner when families go to visit each other. Everybody gets up and wanders from place to place, saying their hellos. In the great communal room at the center of time, in the heart of my one happy tree, everyone is eating. I close my eyes and listen to the knives on wooden cutting boards, someone hollering for salt, little feet running to the table. Waves lap gently against the soft sand as he kneels down onto the shore. The old man's wife, a petite but strong woman, appears behind him, a lit candle cupped in her hands. The forest gets darker, the shapes vaguer. What seems to be a yurt just ahead to the east is only a downed tree. The path is no longer visible, for the fallen snow has erased it. The joy in the room was found in my younger sister. She was young and innocent, and whenever the bombs exploded, she clapped her hands and laughed. 
And through her smile, you could see her only two teeth. The older boy walks up, still carrying a rock, now covered with blood, as is the boy himself, head to toe. He appears dazed in a trance. He kneels down next to the bucket. We see his reflection in the surface of the water. But I'm done killing hyenas. At least I hope so. I'm almost as tall as my father now, and I have nothing left to prove. The psychic told me she thought I'd been a pianist in a past life, but not a famous pianist. When I was nine, I wished I could be a carrot. Outside, it's gray and snowing in his new home by the sea, windows scrimshod by ice, and he says, I was born in a hot, dusty place where the river ran deep in the rainy season, like he's beginning a poem or a fairy tale, and then it all comes pouring out until you realize it's not a fairy tale at all. believing in the importance of listening to student stories. Uh, so did the National Endowment for the Arts, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the President's Committee on the Arts and the Humanities, and First Lady Michelle Obama. In November 2015, the Young Writers and Leaders Program won a National Arts and Humanities Youth Program Award. These awards recognize the country's best creative youth development programs, and they are the nation's highest honor for after-school arts and humanities programs. YWL was one of 12 programs recognized that year, and we got to travel to the White House with our YWL student, Ibrahim Shikara, where we accepted the award from Mrs. Obama. And here's what that day looked like at the telling room. Welcome to the White House for the 2015 National Arts and Humanities Youth Program Awards. As I've said many times before, arts education is not a luxury, it's a necessity. It's really the air many of these kids breathe. It's, it's how we get kids excited about getting up and going to school in the morning. It's how we get them to take ownership of their future. And thousands of kids all across America are dreaming uh, just a little bigger, and they're reaching a little higher thanks to after-school programs that you, you all represent. Now, I was told that at least one of our guests, 19-year-old Ibrahim Shakara of Portland, Maine, where's Ibrahim? I read somewhere that you were a little nervous to meet me and shake my hand at the White House today. Are you really nervous now? <laughs> but you told your local paper that these are his words, it's a big thing. Well, let me tell you, Ibrahim, I think it's even a bigger thing for me to have you all here. It really is. And all the other amazing young people that are here today. Uh, I am proud of all of you. I'm happy you all are here. Uh, I'm excited to see everything that you'll achieve uh, in the future what you'll contribute to your schools, your communities, and more importantly, to our country. Young Writers and Leaders is an after-school literary arts program for the community of teenage refugee and immigrant English language learners in part
Portland, Maine. students could go to the White House with us, but many of them go on to do other big things. Um, so thank you. With that, I want to open it up to you all and hear your questions. We have some time for some general questions. Uh, if you have specific ones, please, or if we don't get to them today, come uh, see us at our book table at the Expo. So yes, in the back. So the question is about funding. Yes, we do receive uh, some funding from the NEA. Um, that is our, that's our only federal source of funding. Uh, we have uh, funding through our Maine Arts um, Commission in Maine. Um, that's a great place, place to start if you're seeking out your own funding. Uh, we receive grants, uh, private foundation grants, and also um, corporate grants, sponsorships, that sort of thing. We have a great donor base because we have such a great community there. Uh, it's really important to engage our donors in the work that we do. Um, and really, it's, it's a, similar to any nonprofit organization, and you can start small um, with reaching out to your local arts council, with reaching out to your local community foundation, or if there's an association of nonprofits. Um, and really, we keep going because we keep getting our students out there, and they're you know, they're the best ambassadors of our work, and that's how we do it. Would anyone else like to add anything? We threw a hell of a party. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> I didn't mention the party. <laughs> Other question? Yes? Right. Good question. Yes, so you can all probably hear, but I just want to say it's, it's about creating a safe space for LGBTQ youth uh, in this program. Great, yeah. Um, great question. And, um, I mean, that a lot of what we do is work really hard on community building right from the get-go. And I, I think, um, I hope you heard that, we, we do start really slowly and, and just with the kids in the room. And that's why we keep the cohorts so small. At 15 students, we really get to know each and every one. And we let them grow with each other in part through those great free rights. Um, but I'll, I'll mention one project um, because it was sort of so special. There are two kids who by the time they got all the way through the program to documentary studies, they went out on the streets together and one of the students was from Cameroon and the other student was from Burundi. And they were curious about what it was like to be gay in this country. In their countries, and they had such different, so they were coming from such different experiences um, where I think the kid from Cameroon, Jan, he had 
he had experienced um, gay life in Burundi, but it was a terrible thing to be. Whereas Clotel was from a tiny village in Cameroon and had never even considered the possibility of homosexuality. So these two guys had already come from such different places and they went out on the street and interviewed people and asked them very directly what their experiences had been as gay people. And they found gay people and asked them that. And in the end, they made this beautiful, incredible, was it a podcast mall or? Yeah, a, a radio piece about um, three different people that they ended up interviewing sort of long-term from that sampling. So I, I, I think it's about that community building piece. We just work really hard to make sure the kids feel safe first in, their own, in our own space. And then slowly and by the end of the year, they're really able to voice some of these bigger ideas that they've had. So thanks for the question. Yes? When the kids go back into the schools, especially the older ones, I'm wondering, um, do they then serve as mentors for other younger writers? Are they sharing all their energy with other kids who aren't in the program? Good, good question. So it's about the leadership piece and uh, what the kids are doing when they're going back to the schools and how they're interacting with their peers and bringing what they're learning uh, to their to their uh, friends at school. We're, we're debating about which kid we're going to give you as an example because <laughs> there are a lot of examples that we can draw on. Um, yeah, one of them is actually that same kid, Jan. Um, he, he was at his high school, Deering High School in Portland. And, um, and, oh, Molly just came up with another one. But Jan wrote a, a beautiful piece of, uh, called My Bathing Suit Smells Like Medicine. And in it, he uh, talks about sort of being isolated on his swim team um, as, a, as a, a black student in the pool. Um, and, and, but remembered a time in Burundi where, where he had had the chance to do some bridge building there. And so then came back to his school and shared this. And the community sort of came around him uh, once he had told his story. Uh, so, that, you know, in a very big way, he, he braved that and brought that story straight back to his school and affected his school. I mean, AK is another great example going back to his school. And Molly, you have one? We had a student named Mohammed Mahdi from Iraq who actually had to be physically dragged into the room to be interviewed because he didn't want to do it. His friends were like, you should do it. You should do it. You hate writing. This would help you. And he was like, I don't want to do that program. And then he came in and did the interview and was like, I hate writing, just telling you, but I feel like I should be better at it. I know it's going to be important for me in the future. Within a few weeks of free writing and sharing in the program, he was bringing in poems that he had written at home that he was really proud of and wanted to share, like was so excited to share. And an example of him bringing it outside of the telling room after the program um, he actually went to his mosque and started small group um, skill shares where he would share with other people what he had learned at the telling room um, from his mosque. So that's just a couple examples, but there's so many. Yes, yeah. in the black back there. Great, good question. So the question is, um, how would this translate into higher ed setting? And uh, is there an opportunity for an exchange between the lower levels and the higher ed? Yeah, that's great. I think you have some thoughts on that. I, I feel like maybe Rick Russo should handle this because he's the only <laughs> one who's taught at the college level here. So maybe he could imagine it. I don't know. Um, it, it's, it seems to me that it would be um, the perfect sort of thing to do in, in 
if it's if not creative writing, then maybe something like American Studies. But it's it's it seems to me that that um, I'm just remembering with a certain with a certain degree of shame my own uh, undergraduate years at the University of Arizona in Tucson and and, re and remembering um, how um, um, the black students used to gather together at, at, at a certain at a certain in a certain section of the of the student union and and other and other ways in which and of people in, in you know who have self-selected in, in in various ways often out of a need of safety and community and, and all of that. But um, um, I, I, don't, I don't know. I guess my question would be, do you start from the, and hope to work something from the bottom up in which you have, in which you have a, a, a group of students who would want to do something like that? But it seems to me that it might be more useful uh, to at least try to suggest something like that to a professor, um, to a writing professor, whereby you get into the course by virtue of your diversity. Um, making that, I, I, you know, I'm just talking really off the, top of, off the top of my head, because it seems to me the problem is how do you, at the level we're talking about, um, Molly was describing just going out into the, going out into the schools um, and, and, um, and talking to teachers and, and then talking to students. And, and, and selecting, you have to find a mechanism for that, it seems to me, in terms of higher education. And I'm not sure what the mechanism would be, but I think a really charismatic teacher who's interested in doing something like that might be the, might be the place to start anyway. My, my motto in all these things always is try something. If it doesn't work, try something else. But, but that's, that's what I would be. If, if I were going back to teaching and wanted uh, and had something like this in mind, I think what I would probably want to do is try to talk to um, faculty members in other in other departments. Maybe somebody in religious studies, um, um, somebody uh, in in women's studies, um, somebody in African American studies, um, and just say how do we how do we assemble how do we how do we teach this course, and how do we and how do we select. The population in a way that that doesn't seem exclusionary to other people. It's and as you know, I mean, and you all do. You all you all know how fraught <laughs> higher education is <laughs> in in terms of some of these things. But that that would be my guess. It's how I would. It's how, how I think I would try at least as a first stab. So the question is, have you seen the current national climate um, reflected in the students and the, in the mood in the room and what they're writing about? Um, we've been talking a lot about this, and I'd love to. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, and the free write is a really wonderful design because the telling room is a warm, welcoming, wonderful, familiar place for them, no matter what's going on out there. Um, and they come in and they choose what they want to write about and what they want to share. Maybe they write something and they don't share it with anybody else, but they've written it down at least. It's not just in their head anymore. Um, but they're coming in and they're, they're tired. They're exhausted, a lot of them, by what's going on. Um, that's the overwhelming feeling. But 
usually by the end of a couple hours with their peers and with us and with their mentors, they feel a little bit better. They feel heard. They feel comforted by that. Um, but it's definitely coming up for them in their writing, and I think writing is a wonderful way for that to kind of work its way through them and to understand and process those feelings that are coming up. Um, but yes, for sure. So if there, we have time for one more. Yeah, go right, go right ahead. Yeah, that's <clears throat> it's it's difficult. I mean, it's probably for the mentors, or in my experience, it's the it's the most challenging part of the mentorship. Um, and I know that Molly also, you know, doing a lot of you know the publication work and and doing the kind of fine tune editing um, has some things to say about this as well. Um, but I really I. Uh, with, with Hamza, for example, I really did try as best I could to take my cues from him. And when there were, were those, um, those um, phrasings that he felt uncomfortable with or curious about, we would have the conversation. But I, I you know, he, um, he was often, um, you know, uh, starting those conversations and wanting to know. Um, and so I, um, I wanted to answer his questions in a way that would not sully the like original impulse that he had. Um, and you know the 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 things that he he was very clear about what he wanted, the feelings that he wanted to express. So it was just really through a lot of back and forth um, that we got to the place that you know, felt right to him and also, you know, used some, as, as I said earlier, that some of those like conventional, um, you know, syntactical, uh, forms. So, but it is, it's, it's really difficult and best practices. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if you have like rules of thumb, Molly, but I, I really tried to only respond to his desires to make something sound, um, you know, uh, in such a way that it could be best received, I guess. So, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I don't have much to add there. I, I think we put a lot of trust in these great writers that we get to work with, like Lou, and Rick eventually is going to come in and work with another <laughs> student. So, um, yeah, they seem to know. You know, these are these are good writers that there's, that these kids are getting to sit down with. And I think the rule of thumb is always to make sure the, the student's voice comes through. Like, that is the single most important thing. So if you read any of the anthologies, you'll know you're reading different people. And that, and that, and, and just making sure that the core of the story, the heart of the story is there and true, and um, that the phrasings are as similar as can be but are not, you know, making the reader stumble. Um, that's something else, too. And I guess it's worth, it is definitely worth pointing out that we do two different types of publications. We always do a chapbook which is what we call the project book at the end of the Young Writers and Leaders year. And that book is, a, is more true to the actual voice of the student. And, and maybe Gums is in Hamza's version of that book. Whereas the books that we end up selling, we do a little bit more professional polish on. And we work with the students on that, too, and show them what the difference is there. So it's actually really educational for them. They walk through that publication world in a, a very real way. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, so. I think we should all use gums, actually. The yeah, more yeah, I think yeah, about it, think she gave us gums. Yeah. I, mm -hmm. What's wrong with that? Yeah, right? I don't know. <laughs> Strawberry gums. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you, panel. Thank you, everyone, for being here.
listening to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.